Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. I'm not making this up. Welcome to Filmstrip and our review of the Bourne films. The Bourne Identity, The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne Ultimative, and 2012's The Bourne Legacy. With all of them at the same time? You heard me. Our agents for the series are Nick. I'm going to ask you some simple questions. You're going to answer me honestly. Or I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. And Jay. Oh, come on, folks. We caught a break here. Let's go. Please note that these files require a high level of listener clearance and you will be privy to plot summaries and detailed discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Born Supremacy, starring Matt Damon, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Julia Stiles, and Carl Urban. Directed by Paul Greengrass, released in 2004 on a budget of $75 million, made $214 million worldwide during its run, and this is the sequel they never thought would happen. Uh, nobody went into the first one thinking they were going to do the whole string of Born novels or any of that. They, they weren't thinking franchise, but anything that makes $200 million at the box office is going to get sequelized. You can almost guarantee it today, right? Whether there were other books or not, and the fact that there were other things to draw from, they were going to go with that. From everything but, the, you got to remember, though, with this movie, it's a pretty uh, loose adaptation of um, the Born Supremacy novel. Basically, uh, you probably got about 1% of the novel in this movie. <laughs> you know, though, I'm okay with that in some ways. I don't I don't know that you, you always have to transliterate stuff. Plus, at my understanding, the Bourne novels are written like post-Vietnam, right? Oh, they're all cold. They're they're completely about the Cold War. The Cold, yeah, see, I just that's so hard to translate anyway. You might as well just do a different story. Well, I know? think that's what the thought process was, because really the only way you could do the Bourne novel would be to do a, a period piece and, you know, do like an 80s or 70s period piece. I kind of forget what year it takes place in, but... You'd be you'd be stuck, you know, doing a period piece for the movie. So I think they decided just to kind of update the story, take a little tidbits from here and there, and just go with it. And if you read the Born Supremacy, which is actually a really good book, probably the best one out of all of them, it's it's vastly different. Uh, the mo- majority of the plot has to do with uh, Treadstone um, or Langley, the CIA. I forget who it is. They basically kidnap Maria in order and blame it on somebody else that they want to get rid of, and then they blame it. I mean, they kidnap Maria. And then they blame it on somebody else who they want Born to kill. <laughs> so it's you got like all this kind of back and forth, and it's all about like I think Chinese, uh, Chinese communists and stuff. It's it's been a long time yeah. since I've read it, but it is a very very good book, and I recommend it. I mean, <laughs> I recommend it as much as I can remember. I just remember when I finished it up, I really liked <laughs> it. So I mean, take it for what it's worth, but it's it's a good book from what I remember. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> That's cool. And I, like I said, I understand it's a fairly loose adaptation. we, we got to talk from the top, though. Different director this time around, Paul Greengrass. Now, where are you on him? Have you seen any of his films? I'm, I'm sure you have, but I mean, what, um, of, what of his stuff have you seen? What do you like? 
I've seen these two, I've seen Green Zone now, and I've seen part of United 93. That was just, I started watching, it was on TV, and I just, it was really well directed, well acted, everything, but it was just, it's not my cup of tea. You know, it's it's too realistic and something I don't really want to relive, so it's like, uh, yeah, I'm just not going to watch it. So, But that, that that's my Paul Greengrass uh, list. Can I tell you, the only thing I've seen of his, besides now having watched this film and then you'll watch the next one, is United 93. I didn't know him from anything but that. And I thought that was a, a very powerful, evocative film, but it was also one that I can't watch very often. But I do praise it for its realism and for the, the way he took it in there. But I think the biggest thing is his whole idea of direction versus Doug Lyman's is completely different. Doug Lyman would sit back and let everything sort of unfold in front of you. Paul Greengrass gets in there and I, you get you know the standard action shaky cam. You get a lot of close-ups, a lot of cuts. It's, it's a different aesthetic all the way for this movie. Oh, it's a, I call that it's a very kinetic movie. It's very uh, fast-paced, and it's almost like done in a documentary-type uh, way. It, mean, it, it makes you feel like this is actually going on, and you're following him. And I think a lot of the stuff that we kind of complained about with the uh, Born Identity, mostly the, uh, the last action scene with him falling down with the unrealistic you know, approach that they took, is basically yeah. gone in this movie. I mean, this is very realistic, very you know, grounded movie, and it's, it's a very different movie, too. Yeah, it's also it's ten minutes shorter too. We should say. I mean, it moves. It feels like it moves faster because it actually is. I mean, it's and eight of that is credits by far. So I mean, it's an hour and forty minute film. I mean, it's pretty tight, and I think that's one of the things I appreciate about it. You know, that's often the problem of the action sequel. And you know, of all the things we've done here, we have never done an action sequel in the film strip lexicon until now, I guess. So uh, I don't. I don't know. I get, you would, if you want to call Aliens two an action film, you can. But but it's not a it's not an action series that you know we we know that so it's it's always hard to keep it up right like I think of Die Hard two you know often as sort of my go to of, of a film that had a hard time trying to keep up with where it came from but this one it does a pretty good job of it and I think it's the way that much like the Born Identity it just throws us into this thing so. Let's get on into this and talk. Let's go through a plot summary, I guess, first, and then we can talk about the movie. So it's been two years since the events of The Born Identity, and Jason Bourne, along with Marie, are living in incognito in India, where Bourne is still haunted by his past as a black ops agent. In Berlin, CIA Deputy Director Pamela Lundy runs a buy operation spending $3 million to purchase evidence to expose a mole within the agency who allegedly stole $20 million in allocation from Congress seven years before. Before Landy's operation can complete the transaction, before Landy's operative can complete the transaction, a Russian FSB agent, uh, is it Kirill, is that how you say it? Uh, Kirill, who was hired by a foreign oil magnet, infiltrates the building and plants Bourne's fingerprints at the scene, kills the operative and the seller of the information, and makes off with the evidence and the money. Kirill then goes to Goya to finish the job by assassinating Bourne. Bourne spots him and attempts to flee with Marie, but Kirill uh, uh, gives chase and shoots at the vehicle, kills Marie, and causes the jeep to run off on the bridge into the river. Kirill leaves, believing Bourne to be dead, and of course, seeking vengeance for Marie's death, Bourne departs for Italy. Landy follows the plenty fingerprint 
lead and gain security clearance to sift through CIA's archives to investigate Operation Treadstone, and she stumbles upon evidence implicating Alex Conklin, and she questions his old boss, Deputy Director Ward Abbott, again, Brian Cox returning, and he only admits to vague details. She then gives the report to her supervisor, and advising that, and who advises her that some years back, a Russian politician acquired proof of the identity of the thief who stole the $20 million. And when the Russian threatened to make it public, he was killed along with his wife in what appeared to be a murder-suicide in a Berlin hotel room. Landy suspects Bourne and Conklin were responsible. The meeting is interrupted with a report that Bourne has just been detained in Naples, and Marshall orders both Abbott and Landy to go and apprehend Bourne. Meanwhile, Bourne incapacitates the consulate field officers questioning him, copies his SIM card from a cell phone, and learns that Landy uh, learns of Landy and her suspicions when he eavesdrops on a phone call. He then heads to Munich to interrogate the only other living former Treadstone operative, a man named Jarda, who informs him that the program was shut down after Conklin's death. Jarda alerts the CIA of Bourne's presence and then attacks Bourne, and after a brief fight, Bourne strangles him to death and then blows up his house in order to avoid capture by the incoming CIA team. In Amsterdam, Landy and Abbott question the former Treadstone support technician Nikki Parsons and bring her along with them to Berlin. Believing that Landy ordered the hit in India, Bourne calls her and arranges to meet Nikki, and after he abducts her, Nikki tells Bourne that Abbott was the true mastermind of Treadstone and not Conklin. Next, Bourne visits the site of his first mission, the Brecker Hotel in Berlin, and recalls that he killed Nesky and his wife on Conklin's orders and made it appear as a murder-suicide. Abbott kills his assistant when when the man uh, shares his suspicions of a conspiracy, and Bourne breaks into Abbott's hotel room and records an incriminating conversation between him and the oil magnate, in which they discuss their roles in the theft of the $20 Holding Abbott at gunpoint, Bourne secretly records him confessing to the whole ordeal and the murders of the agents in the buy operation, and he lets him live only because, uh, he says, Marie wouldn't want him to die. But, of course, Landy shows up, and Abbott commits suicide. Bourne later mails her the tape of his confession, blowing the lid on the whole thing. Bourne then travels to Moscow to find Arena Nesky, the orphaned daughter of the two Russians he killed. Kirill tracks him down and shoots him in the shoulder, and they, along with the police, engage in a high-speed car chase, which ends with Kirill seriously injured after Bourne smashes his vehicle into a concrete divider. Bourne finds Arena and confesses to her his part in her parents' death and apologizes. Lady uses the tape of Abbott's confession to have the Russian oil magnate, who's behind a lot of this, arrested. And six weeks later in New York, Lady receives a phone call from Bourne. She expresses her gratitude for the tape and tells him that his real name is David Webb and that he was born in 1971 in Missouri. She also thanks him for providing her with information about Abbott. And Bourne replies simply, get some rest, Pam. You look tired, revealing that he was watching her from the from another office all along. And that is the plot summary to the Bourne supremacy. I think you described it best, Nick. This is a kinetic movie. I I mean, this thing is jumping continent to continent all over the place. When we talked about the Bourne Identity, I, you said it was kind of a bigger movie. I thought it was kind of smaller. This one seems a lot bigger to me, just because, you know, it's a lot more jumping around. I mean, you got a lot more callbacks over to Langley, especially, you know, with uh, Pamela Landry. I mean, she's a lot more... I mean, even her character is a lot more kinetic than um, Chris Cooper's character was last time. Yeah, she's a different... A bureaucrat all the way, you can tell. And one that you get the sense is not really in all this cloak and dagger way of doing things. I mean, maybe in some way, well, I shouldn't say that because she's doing the buy operation, but she's not in all this be, training hitmen to go and throw coups around the world. That's not really how she seems to operate. 
And she's a very cool customer. And I kind of like that. Cooper, you know, Conklin, on the other hand, would lose his cool. And we saw that several times last time. Well, with Conklin, too, you knew he was a bad guy. I mean, about through, halfway through the movie, you realize that he was kind of the bad guy, the guy who was pulling all the strings. But you don't get that with Pamela at all. I mean, you kind of figure she's a, yeah. you know, a glass ceiling smashing woman. I mean, she's very, she's an authoritative woman. And I, I actually, I really like her character. I mean, even when she's like, you know, if you want to go home, find Jason Bourne the way she's talking to everybody. She's almost like a football coach. And not once you ever get the vibe that she's really a bad guy. She's just someone doing her job, and she's not going to be – she's doing everything by the book. You know, she's not like Conklin or right. Abbott where they're going to do sneaky stuff. It's like everything she does, she'll write down on paper and, you know, send it in to whoever her boss is, you know. Can, can I tell you I'm glad that they'll, they made the CIA, the government – a I hate to use this word, but like a neutral party in this whole thing this time. And that you've got, now you've got this Russian and this oil magnate, the Europeans basically, who are Bourne's enemies in this one. And he just has to go through and around the government to it. But the government's not the enemy this time. And I kind of like that because it's so easy to paint that, right? It's so easy to, they're, they're against him and that they're the bad guy and stuff. And I like the fact that they're more or less neutral in this. And it's mainly because uh, Landy's involved and her steadying hand on this whole thing. And let's face it, she's in over her pay grade. I mean, she gets in to this because of information that gets dropped on her desk and this whole bomb investigation thing. I mean, she gets way in over her own head, but is able to swim with it nonetheless. And what's uh, Abbott's um, first comment when she gets involved? Oh, you want my job. You know, you want, you want me to be done. You know, it's like right away, it's like, yeah, this woman's coming in and take my job. But I never really got that feeling from her at all. I just got a feeling that it was, you know, she got called into this, you know, messy thing, and she's just going to do it by the books and get it done with. And I like the way that they're neutral because really, that's the way they're supposed to be. I mean, they're not taking sides. It's what's going in and what's right and what's wrong, and they're going to go, you know, and do it. And I just, I really like this aspect in the movie. It's very realistic. It very much is. I agree. And it's to her, three million dollars is not something she's just willing to to throw away. I mean, in the opening bit. When the buy operation's going down, she's still on the phone with like an oversight committee saying, hey, we got to do this or not. I got the guy 10 feet away, you know, so she obviously takes that very seriously and is not willing to just write it off as collateral damage. I mean, she's definitely going to go after it. No, I appreciated that about her. I mean, she's somebody who takes her. I imagine you don't get to that position as a woman in that type of work by not taking your work incredibly seriously and dotting every I, crossing every T. So I I liked her a lot. So let's start in the the beginning of the film, though. We pick up with Bourne and Marie, who are living together. They're in India, and you still see him having these nightmares, these flashbacks about operations that he's done, and you can't sleep, and it's it's actually making him sick. He's got a fever and all kinds of stuff. What did you think about where we picked up with these two, and the fact that we did pick up with them Oh, I like that. I mean, it's it makes sense that they would be, you know, staying off the grid and everything, because he knows, you know, whether he knows directly or it's just intuition that he had from his training that, you know, he needs to be off the grid because, you know, the CIA, whatever, they could always pop up and come back after him, or maybe another group, you know? So... I liked it, and I just I believe their I believe in their relationship. I mean, from the last movie, and just even how they're acting now, where you know he's waking up in the middle of the night and she's comforting him and everything, and it's just it's a really well done scenes with them in the beginning of the movie. I mean, it's kind of it kind of makes it a little bit unfortunate she gets killed off pretty early in this movie because I really like the way their the rapport that they have with each other. 
I did too. I think that was one of the things last time that they we talked about the casting there seemed really great with her because Franca Patente is such a, a down-to-earth kind of real person. And the fact that she has gone along with him for this entire ride and has stuck this out with him for so long is is a testament to how she really feels about him and the fact that he completely trusts her in spite of everything that he knows and all that he's haunted by and etc. And I do think it was interesting though that you know by the end of the last film he was done with that old life. He didn't want to be that person anymore. That's what he said to Conklin, right? But he can't escape it. And that's kind of the I think that's sort of the moral of the whole or the crux of this whole second chapter here is that Bourne cannot escape what he's done or who he is and he's got to come to terms with it. He can't just drop it. And because everywhere he goes there's always an opportunity for it to come flashing back to him. And but even like with that, it's like she's completely supportive of him trying to figure out who she, who he was. I mean, he, she has him writing in the diaries, reviewing them all, and just they're yep. trying to piece it back together so he can overcome this, so they can overcome it together as a couple. And also, I get from her that he, she's really his like moral compass. She's the reason why he's just you know he could very easily fall back into that game. I guess from what I was gathering with him that she was the one kind of keeping him on the straight and narrow because, I mean, is that how you kind of figured it? That, you know, he was just, he, was, he stole a weapon. I mean, he's still programmed to be like that. He, he's a trained killer. Yeah, after she dies, he says maybe six things the rest of the film. He turns into the Terminator after she dies. And so that's how easily he could slip back into it. I think you're exactly right. She gives him, she is the embodiment for hope that he could have a, quote, normal life if he can ever just get through all of this. And he hangs on to that. And when she's gone, I mean, he, I, I'm serious. Matt Damon has very little to say the rest of this film. The dialogue is everybody else's. It's really that last bit with Landy on the phone that he has anything to say. And I think that's because, like I said, he turns into the Terminator. That's what I guess I really like. Even when I go back and I rewatch The Born Identity, it's, I just really always like the way that you see him become. And then you watch like The Born Identity and you can almost see it. It's like, how he is in the born identity is all because of her. The reason he's talking is because of her. If she wasn't around, he right. would be very much like he is right now in the uh, born supremacies. He would be in the born identity. He wouldn't he'd just be a Terminator type machine. And like I said, I mean, it's I said I think it makes it all more impactful when Maria Marie does die. I mean, when I first saw this movie, I was shocked. I was like, they just killed her off. I mean, it's I just I mean, what did you think about that when that happened? Well, it's it's mind it's mind blowing. It it absolutely I did not see it coming it, by far. I mean, it was I knew something was going to happen because the way that all goes down is they set up this Kirill guy as a Russian operative who's been hired by this oil magnet to he kills the uh, mole and the uh, buyer in this uh, CIA buy thing. And he sets up the bomb and plants a fingerprint. I mean, he didn't even have to tell you what all that is. You know he's planting stuff about Bourne. And then he's sent to India to finish it. And he goes there. And, I mean, as soon as Bourne catches him, he knows. I mean, what does he say to her? It's like it's the wrong guy in the wrong town in the wrong car. Like, he, he knows that's one of theirs. He knows that's one of somebody like him. So they start running. And I think the really kicker part about when she gets shot is they're having, like, a really dark conversation and a really intense one. And she essentially says, yes, I still believe in you. And then, boom, yeah. she gets shot in the back of the head. 
that came out of nowhere. I really thought he would shoot into the car and would hit like her in the arm or something. I did not expect. Well, I thought originally that they were just going to have him jump out of the car and then she takes off for a while, like they did at the end of the last movie. You know, just her disappear from the movie and then it'd be something for him to go back to. But yeah. it's like as you watch it, though, you realize that once she was killed, that that was like all that was really, you know, human left in him is gone. It's like they just took it away with one gunshot and it's like, right? yeah, they're they're kind of reaping what they're, you know, they're what they're... What am I saying? What the, when they end up, yeah, they're reaping what they sow with her. I mean, it's with with him. It's like they go after him. He told them to leave him alone because if they didn't leave him alone, he was gonna he was gonna rain hell down on him. Well, yeah, I don't even know that they knew what this was gonna do. Honestly, I think Kirill intended to kill him. Now, here's my question to you: Did he misborn? Did he misborn and hit her, or did he intend to kill her? No, he thought it was going to be him because they switched seats. He was in the driver's seat and she was in the passenger seat. And then they switched right when they got to the bridge. Right, and, right. You know, he had that rifle and he just shot at the he shot at the driver's side thing and Bourne was in that. That's right. You're right. And that, I think yeah. I don't I don't think he really gave a gave a crap about her. His job was, you know, after he framed Bourne was to go kill Bourne. So now there's no no loose ends with it. It's like Bourne was there. Bourne stole the money. Bourne killed those guys. Now Bourne's dead. You know, it's clay, ca- case closed. And that was the whole point of the whole thing. Right. It's, yeah, exactly. It was, it was it was to lay the blame somewhere else. So, and what we know is that this is Abbott and his guys controlling this whole bit along because this is how this oil magnet basically came into power was, was a good bit of this seed money, and and you can also get the sense that like Bourne's five million that he's been running around on was this money, <laughs> you know, it came out of this pile or whatever. So they're all tied to it. So they figure, Hey, this is the best scapegoat ever. He's already on everybody's list because of what went down two years ago. Now we, we just totally pin it on him and then this will be it. And I, I mean, it's a genius plan by the bad guys. I mean, I think it's, it's good, but boy, they, they had no idea what was coming. Now, we got to back up for a second and talk about the Russian agent, Kirill. Carl Urban, Judge Dredd himself coming up, the Doom guy. I mean, I think he's he's been in a lot of stuff. I shouldn't just label him as such. Oh, but bones. I've he's never, the new Bones. <laughs> is, oh, is he? I didn't know that. Yeah, so, you didn't, you didn't. Oh, that's right. He's the new, that's right. He's the new McCoy. You're right. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Um, this guy, this guy to me... <laughs> It may be one of the worst actors I've ever seen land in a lot of big budget. He was movies. in Lord of the Rings he's too. Not, he's not particularly good though. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I'm not going to try to dog the man because obviously he's had a good career, but I just don't find his performances all that compelling. Do you? I thought he was fine in Lord of the Rings. You know, he played the um, I forget what the character's name is, but the uh, the overprotective brother of. Um, yeah, Miranda Otto's character. I f- my, my, oh, see, I barely yeah. remember him. There's so many people in the. Yeah, he was he was the guy with the know. long blonde hair that was on the horse. He was one of the Rohan soldiers. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it, I remember him in that Doom. Um, yeah, Doom sucked. <laughs> um, yeah, that was bad. That wasn't his fault though. I, I don't blame him for that. That's not his fault. That was a terrible idea. But and then he, then, then he was in Star Trek, and I thought he was good in Star Trek. I thought he did a pretty good, uh, you know, McCoy. DeForest Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, he was it was okay. I I don't know. That Star Trek movie maybe someday we'll get around to those and uh, not the whole series, just that new one. I don't ever care to watch Star Trek 5 again. But um, you know, we, we talk about this some other day, but I don't know. He just I I think the funny thing to me was he has maybe four lines in the whole film and I I think I texted you and said, "Yeah, and it's three too many." 
Like, I, I'm okay with him being the silent hunter type. I kind of buy that because he does look like an action star. It's like he could handle himself in a fight. But I, I didn't ever need him talking much. And thankfully, they didn't do much of that. With yeah, me. I thought he was fine in here because he was just basically he's the flip side of the coin of, you know, Bourne. He's the um, still part of it. I mean, he's still part of the obvious. I mean, well, no, I don't, I don't think Russian. he really is he, a part of the gut. I always took him as kind of like the Russian counterpart to the Treadstone agency. Well, yeah, and he's yeah. probably – and. From what I gather, too, is he's probably not part of the government anymore, you know, after the fall of the USSR and everything, that he's probably just a rogue agent himself, and that, you know, maybe he was well, part of the Well, he's a freelancer, Soviet. for sure. I mean, that's... Yeah. I always took him... My, yeah, I yeah. always wrote a little backstory for him. I figured that he was, uh, you know, like the Hitler youth group, but he'd be like for the Russia guys, you know. He was the Russian <laughs> youth guys that were raised to be like these super soldiers and stuff, and after the fall of the USSR that... He kind of became a mercenary to the highest bidder, and that's what he kind of became in here. And like I said, he's the flip side of the coin to Bourne, where Bourne's, you know, like that, but he's trying to get away from that, where this guy's embracing it. And he's not as good as Bourne. I mean, none of these guys are as good as Bourne. But I, I like this character. I thought he was evil. And I just like the two, even later in the movie, when you see him, that he's like, you know, he's just a quiet guy. I mean, he's at a strip club or something. He's just sitting there, and he's just like, yeah, give me my money, you know? <laughs> Yeah, he's a he's very much a methodical, emotionless guy. It's almost robotic in some ways, but he moves with grace and fluidity, which is kind of the neat thing of his performance, I think. And at, where Bourne is very kinetic, as you've described, this guy kind of takes his time. He enjoy, he knows I think what he enjoys doing it. And, he ver- yeah, I, I do too. I think he, he this is a hunt to him. He likes the hunt, you know, and... He as he gets thrown back into this thing because he thought Bourne was dead and he had a month off and the the Russian oil magnet guy comes to get him and said uh-uh, he lived and he's like okay and so immediately he just starts putting his stuff together and he's heading back out to go get Bourne and I I don't know I I, I bought him in this I don't know that Carl Urban's a great actor or anything but for this role he was fine and I, moreover I thought the character was good and I think we agree on that well it's it's a formidable bad guy for him I mean last time. Conklin was the main bad guy, where I think now it would probably be him that's kind of the main bad guy. Whereas, like, you know, the Bourne Identity, he really didn't have one guy that he's up against. There was a bunch of them, but they were, like, you know, kind of like the red shirts. You know, they just kind of pop up, and then they fight, and then Bourne wins. Where this guy, you see him from beginning, and you see him all the way to the end. And, yeah, I I like this character. I like having, a you know, a a bad guy you're with the whole time. I thought it was a real nice addition to this movie. Now, what about this middle bit here where we where we get into the investigation part? This is where Landy follows that planted fingerprint, and it leads her into Treadstone. Because once they do the type on the print, you know, and they start running it through the database, it comes up like, ain't got to have security. So she knows that, okay, this is probably one of ours. And how did this happen? So she stumbles upon all that evidence. How did you like the way all that laid out and how she essentially worked her way up the chain to learning about the whole Russian politician and the assassination and all that stuff? I liked it a lot because it made sense because it was supposed to be found out by her. It wasn't like she really did any real detective work for it. It was pur- purposely laid out so she would find it, so she would find out it's born, and then hopefully it would lead to her finding out that Bourne's dead. And I, I liked it too, even when they're showing that one agent showing um, Abbott about the fingerprints and how it doesn't really make sense. It's like Bourne's a professional. He wouldn't put a charge on this one because this one does nothing. And it's like you, re- you realize yeah, exactly. that it was like they only did that so his fingerprint would be around for them to find. And then it makes sense that, okay, well, Landry got the fingerprint, ID'd it, got Bourne, she went and got her clearance because he, you know, 
got the clearance and found out who it is. I mean, it was all kind of laid out for her to right. figure out whether it was her or whoever was investigating, not her directly, but whoever was investigating the case would find out who Bourne was and then later find out that Bourne was dead. Or if they would, or if they would go hunting for him themselves, be chasing a ghost for 30 years, like they said in the movie, where it's like they kill him, they don't know where he is, so now they're going to send out people looking for him and he's dead. You know, they're not going to find him. So it's, I, it was a very clever plot. It was very well thought out, but... It's a great way to misdirect their biggest obstacle in the office, basically. And here's what I like in the way that they sort of retcon and tie back into the previous story. I mean, you have a cameo by Chris Cooper in one of Matt Damon's flashbacks where they're riding to this undisclosed location to do a job. And you later find out it's to kill the Russian and his wife. And, you know, it's it's like uh, Conklin said last time, I send you in because you make it look like you know, nobody else could have done it but them, and it doesn't look like us. And you get where he gets that training from now. And I liked how they sort of circled back around on all that, that we've gone back to the beginning, basically, for Bourne, and that Bourne's reoccurring nightmare is his first mission, you know, his first big mission. And I, I don't know, I, I thought that was neat that they would come back to that moment in time of all the things he had presumably done as part of Treadstone. And we still, we just don't know how many years he was involved in it, do we? No, not really. I mean, I've, I always figure it's probably, I don't know, maybe like five years or something maybe he was involved in it. Not very long, yeah. but it wasn't very short either. It was, like, you know, a good chunk of time, so. Yeah, it was long enough to have made enough enemies and friends and places to hide, know his way around, you know. He'd been in long enough to do that. But, yeah, I liked how they tied all that back into Conklin before and how, like you said, they basically lead Landy down the path to realize, well, that this was a Bourne and Conklin thing, and so now I've got to figure out what happened to Bourne. And she, like you say, is supposed to find out that he's dead, but, uh-oh, he's not. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... Well, how did how did she because, first find out about it? I'm, I'm, well, because when she is sitting there in Washington arguing with Abbott about all of this stuff and with her boss, uh, Marshall, uh, the deputy marshal, deputy marshal, director Marshall, Bourne allows himself to get caught going through the airport. And at first I thought, man, what are you doing? Have you just totally lost your mind? And then I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He got caught because he wanted to get caught. Now, why did he want to get caught? going through Naples you know that's what I was trying to figure out and that's what sends them in motion to okay we got to go get him you know that's how she finds out he's alive and really how the rest of them find out he's alive too yeah he totally put it he allows himself to get yeah caught. he put it in motion because that way he can figure out who's coming after him what's going on who sent that one guy to kill him because he doesn't know at this point really what's going on so he's thinking that you know Langley is sending all these people out to kill him again so but he wants to figure out you know he's gonna take the fight to them this time so Comes in, gets right. caught, waits for them to contact him, then beats the crap out of the guy and basically takes off with their information so he can figure out what's going on. What do you think of the tech in this one? You know, we didn't talk much about the tech that he uses in the last one because it was pretty low tech for the most part. But in this one, like he's got a little machine that copies a SIM card on a cell phone and allows him to listen in on a phone call and all this stuff. I mean, he's loaded for bear with his gear this time. And I kind of liked it. It's sort of the evolution of the Bond series. You know, the further those got along at the beginning, the cooler the technology got. I kind of like that Bourne had that stash in his footlocker or something. You know, I figured it's probably stuff that he bought. After, you know, after this whole thing happened, I mean, the guy's got a lot of money and he's not stupid. He's yep. not going to sit there and believe nothing. I figure this is all stuff that he kind of bought on the black market. And he would know where to go get it. You're right. So I don't know. I thought it was cool. I mean, I, I dug it and I like the fact that that's how he is basically tipped off into who he can trust. And I think it, there's something in there because I watched this twice, Nick, and 
there's something when he listens to that phone call with Landy and things, he gets this look on his face. And I don't know if it's intentional or if I'm just reading it in there or not, but I kind of get this sense that like that's the moment he starts to trust her. And he knows, well, I can trust her. I can't trust any of these other people, but I can trust her. Because it, it seems to me that he operates on the assumption that Landy is going to work with him I think it's somewhere down the line. Be brought in. She doesn't want him killed because all in the last movie yeah. they wanted him killed. They never wanted to bring him in. They wanted him dead on the street. And this, you know, she's trying right. to bring him in. So obviously there's got to be a reason why she's bringing him in, and that's the question. So obviously she doesn't really know what's going on, and she's not involved in that stuff. Otherwise she would basically, you know, want the guy dead. And I think that's kind of how he's putting it together where it's, you know, she's not the bad guy. Because if she was a bad guy, she wouldn't be talking to this guy right now. Exactly. And then that's the part where he goes to Germany and finds the only other living Treadstone operative that he knows about, uh, Jarda. And they, you know, have a little... <laughs> I like their fight. I don't know if you thought about it. I, I like their close quarters combat, hand-to-hand fight. It was it was shot differently this time than maybe that last one in the hotel that we saw, but I liked it just the same. I thought it was it was more of Bourne being resourceful because eventually he just chokes him out with the telephone. I liked it a lot. I love I loved the whole interaction between them because, you know, Bourne's memory's kind of coming back, and that's how he found him because if you look at the flashbacks, it's him and, you know, Conklin in the car. So I think, and then even asked him, you know, right. I thought you had amnesia or something like that, and he's like, well, some of it's coming back. So it kind of gives ex- reasoning to why he knew where he was right and that's that's the thing is he learned that conklin's dead he didn't know that and i i did like the fact that he wasn't aware of that and uh, because i thought he would have known you know after because he was right there but i guess he got out of dodge before conklin got shot but i don't know i thought that was kind of cool yeah i like it when he when he got in there too like the guy grabs his gun and it's like I know where you kept your gun, man. The bullets are out. And he's like, yeah, it does feel a bit light. And then you find out, well, no, he knew he was in there the whole time, too. That's, you know, he sent he sent the word to, you know, the CIA or Langley that, you know, Bourne was there or there was somebody there. So now they're coming for him and stuff. And, you know, they can do a pretty cool fight. I like the way Bourne, you know, handles even the whole room where he puts the magazine in the toaster. Yeah. Don't you wish George Lucas had been watching this when he staged some of the prequel fights between the Jedi, you know, particularly Obi-Wan and Anakin. Like, it should have been more like this and less like a video game well, in lava. <laughs> oh, anyway, I digress. But, but I mean, really, I, I was watching this going like, these are like Jedi Knights. They know every move they're going to make seven yeah. minutes before they make it, you know, which is, which is cool because, again, it gives your protagonist formidable foes every time they come up to a boss fight, if you will. It's somebody that they can match with. And you just hope, you know, the protagonist is the best of all of them. So he ultimately gets the best of them. But there's times when he looks pretty, he's in trouble. I always took it at this guy, too. I mean, when we saw Conklin get killed, I always kind of took it that this was kind of a little bit of a, a retcon, that this guy was probably the one that killed Conklin. And then, you know, kind of went... Ah, into, I thought could, about that. Because, you know, he said he's the last one. So I always kind of figured that, you know... And then he, when he watched Born Identity, there was only one left. So I always kind of figured that they did maybe a little bit of recasting here or something, and this is supposed to be kind of the same character. Yeah, I think that's that's what they're trying to do. But I I don't know. I, I also took that what he was saying was a lie, that he was the only other living one. Well, I, we know for a fact that was a lie because the whole tagline of the new movie, Born Legacy, is there was never only one. So, 
So there, there are a bunch of them out there. There's just maybe the only this is the only other one Bourne knows about, or at least that he can remember at this point. Yeah. So, but I like to bet though that you you really can't believe anything these guys say, and they almost know that they're just lying to each other. But it's it's in code. You know, they know how to lie to each other to get each other to different places. But he might actually think that too. They might he might. He might have been told that he was the last one. I mean, I doubt these guys are in on all the secrets or even know who all the assets are. I think the only reason Dorn knew who this guy was because he did a mission with him because this guy was obviously, you know, he's been around longer than Bourne. I mean, I think he's probably one of the first guys, and, you know, that's why he was Conklin's driver or the one dropping Bourne off. I mean, I always figured that he was before Bourne. Yeah, good point, good point. Well, we go over to the Netherlands now, and Landy and Abbott are there to meet up with Nikki Parsons, Julia Stiles, the former tech from the Paris Safe House, and they want to bring her along with them to Berlin because she knew Bourne, you know. And when they finally get her nearby, he finds, uh, Bourne finds out she's there and wants her to come there. And I love how he abducts her because it, it is so fierce. And that whole speech he gives her when he's walking her to the subway is, is terrifying. Definitely. I mean, he's just telling her, he's like, you know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, I swear to God, I'm going to kill you if you lie to me. And you kind of feel bad for her because she gets totally pulled in this thing without any consent on her own. I mean, Bourne sees her, yeah. you know, when he's talking to Pamela Landry and stuff, and he's, you know, put up on top of the, the adjacent skyscraper, and he's got a sniper rifle aimed right at her. And, you know, they're talking about it and stuff, and he's like, well, you know, I kind of remember Nikki Parsons and stuff. She was around, you know, in the last movie, and I kind of know that she has a history with me and stuff, so you got to send her. And she's like, how do you know we can find Nikki? Well, she's standing right next to you. Yeah, that, and that's what, yeah, another one of those moments where they realize they're not going to be able to get the drop on this guy. And he's playing them the whole way. Yep. And I like that she's the one that really reveals to him that it's Abbott who's behind Treadstone, not Conklin, and that there's no file about Bourne being in Berlin. There's, you know, she doesn't know what he's done, but that it, Abbott's the one that's been in control. And that's the big reveal is that it's it's this is the guy who's the real mastermind the real evil of this and that often happens in the action sequel you know and i like that i thought that was cool because i mean we've known he was a brian cox has never played a good guy in his career i don't think and i kind of knew he was going to turn out to be dirty he's just waiting for it to happen and now you find out why it, it gives you so much more insight into why he would have had Conklin killed, why he's done everything he's done in yeah. these two movies. No, definitely. He's always been the kind of the big bad. I mean, you don't really see it in the first movie. You always figured he was the one kind of just, you know, who had this little operation going on and Conklin was a little bit, you know, out of his mind. But now you see that, you know, he's even worse. I mean, he was the one that called the hint on Conklin that we saw. And, you know, he might have been doing it back then just for this, you know, to get this money and everything. Because I always figured he kind of wanted this money because he kind of wanted to get out of the game. That I figured he was getting this $20 million well, to retire and then just be done with this crap. But, you know, he's an evil man. Well, here's the thing. What was the 20? Like, that's the thing I'm a little fuzzy on still. Because I think I told you earlier, I think there's $20 million. Part of it got paid to, you know, Bourne and Conklin and different people. But I think part of it went to this Russian oil magnet. And they set him up because he's going to have some influential role in their government somehow. And there's going to be some kind of legal arms deal with it. I didn't, I was a little fuzzy on all of that. And again, it would probably take another watch for me to get it. But did you pick up on what the role, what the whole bit about the twenty million was, and why they stole? I million? figured it was just they were stealing it just to steal it. You know, it's twenty million bucks. You know, he okay. wanted the money. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Abbott's a pretty old man. I mean, it looked like he's probably you know pushing seventy. And I figured that he just this was kind of like his little retirement fund that he had put aside and everything, and now he wanted it. You know, so 
you know, buy, you know, everybody else be damned. He's going to get his money and take out everybody else with him and retire and live out the rest of his life with his grandkids or something, you know? Well, that does, that does make sense. And you know what? I said before, we don't know how Longborn's been in this. It's at least seven years because this $20 million theft happened seven years ago. And we understand this is Bourne's first mission was to go kill this uh, Russian guy, this other Russian who uh, supposedly knew who had worked out and stolen that $20 million and was going to rat it out. So I don't know. I, I like the fact that it is Abbott who's behind all of it. It would take somebody that high up to pull all of this stuff off and that in the end, he is, uh, you know, he's revealed to be exactly as evil as he is because he kills his, you know, uh, uh, underling who's showing him that I think this is a conspiracy. There's no way Bourne would have left his fingerprint here. This is a bogus bomb, et cetera. And that he really incriminates himself and he doesn't realize that Bourne's got him. And then what I love that showdown with him and Bourne in, in his hotel room when Bourne's got the gun on him and he's just spilling his guts. <laughs> yeah, he gets the gun right to his head and then, you know. He doesn't kill him because he figures that Maria wouldn't want him, or I can't call him Maria. Marie wouldn't want him dead, and it doesn't matter anyways. He ends up taking his own life, which you know was pretty much his only way out at that time. Yeah, either that or go to prison, and I mean that was not something that guy was ever willing to do. You could tell, so he takes himself out. But I like how Bourne's got the the goods, and he gets it to Landy just by mailing it to her, so he can clear himself and implicate Treadstone and bury it once and for all. I and mean, he basically burns the whole thing down. And that's that's the cool part, but we're not done because we didn't really talk about the car chase in the last movie because I told you we, we really wanted to save the car chase talk for this one because this last third of this movie, a chunk of it, is a car chase in Moscow with Kirill tracking down Bourne. And they, I mean, it's this is a violent, very frenetic car chase. Oh, definitely. I I don't know what your feelings are, but I like the car chase. I I liked all these car chases in all these movies. I mean, even the first one needs a car chase in a mini. I mean, who would who would have thought that? Not <laughs> even like a new mini, like in the Italian job. It's like some old like nineteen seventies mini that you know Marie had, and you know he he. Oh yeah, it's a and it's just, I think yeah. it kind of showed him in the first movie how badass he was. That you know what he's going to take out everybody else, and he's in this old ass car. You know, he, he looks at the map and he memorizes it and he goes and. I like this one, too, because it's like, again, you got the big bad guy going after him, and it's violent. I mean, especially the end when he gets that guy up on the, um, yeah, the concrete divider and just smashes the hell out of it. And you see him, and he's just all bloodied and everything, and it's it's awesome, I thought. Are are we supposed to believe he's dead at that point? Uh, even if he's not dead, he's not going to survive or he's yeah. done. I mean, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I mean, Bourne doesn't shoot him. So that's what makes me think, like, okay, he's dead. So no reason to shoot. Yeah, he looked like he was having a little trouble breathing at the end right there. He was smashed up pretty good. Well, after after that wreck, who could blame him? I mean, that the, you know, I mean, it is a it's one of the best looking car crashes I've seen. Here's another thing I like about it, Nick, and I don't know how much of it they doctored up with CGI. I'm sure there's pieces of it here and there, but it's a big practical effect. I'm a sucker for good big practical effects like that. And you know, Christopher Nolan does these things in his films, and there's other people that do it too. But Greengrass is known for this in some of his stuff. His big practical effects are always so cool, and the, I love the fact that this is all taking place. Sure, it's on a set or whatever or it's you know something that they built or some old abandoned subway or something but it it looks amazing to see real pieces of metal and concrete flying around while these guys basically demolition derby each other up and down the highway and i like how born gets hurt i mean he gets shot in the shoulder 
So he doesn't walk out of this thing unscathed. I mean, he's uh, that's another thing that makes him unique. You know, Bond never gets shot. I mean, he gets beat up sometimes, but he never gets shot. None of, you know, Arnold can get shot. You know, Arnold can survive a nuclear blast from the Predator, you know, and he's still fine. This guy gets shot, and you can tell he's hurt. I mean, he's really hurt. Yeah, I like it too when he's walking around with the gunshot wound. What's he do? He runs into the liquor store, grabs a bottle of vodka, and he's pouring it on the wound. Exactly. I mean, hardcore all the way. And then what about his rendezvous with the the orphan daughter of the two people he killed? And that, I mean, it's a really slow, methodical conversation where he basically tells her, no, nope, they didn't die. They didn't kill each other. Everything's been told is a lie. I killed them because it was part of my job changes things doesn't it i mean it was just so it was cold and i don't know what he was getting out of that if it was this the catharsis of telling her that or what i think it was everything i think it was she's in no position to do anything to him i think he wanted to tell her just to kind of help out his memory to help him out you know even to help her out because she doesn't know her backstory i mean she's living this lie right now she doesn't have any idea what what went on in her past and i think he kind of can relate to that because he doesn't know what went on in his past and just for someone to come out and tell her, it's like, you know, this is what happened. This is why this happened. This is the reason you are the way you are right now. And I think a lot of it was just kind of soul-finding for Bourne in a way, something he had to do. I think something that even thought Marie would want him to do. Well, can I tell you this? The first time I watched this I, and they show the close-up of this girl walking, I thought, is that Marie? Did she survive? Has this been a ruse the whole time? And it's only after a, a you know minute or two you realize, no, it's not. But I thought for a minute, oh, wow, what a double cross if that's the case. But, of course, it's not. But I think you're right. I think, you know, I said before, Damon or Bourne really doesn't have anything to say the rest of the film. And the, only, the longest talking he does is to Parsons when he's basically pointing guns at her and telling her he's going to kill her. And then now, and it's at this moment that he sort of becomes the person he was at the beginning of the movie. Again, he sort of shuts down the Terminator and starts to try to be whoever he is. You know, he's trying to be human again. And I, I liked that and that this was his cathartic way of going through that process to rehumanize himself and to get ready to try to move on with his life. Even like when he's way he's telling her, he's just, you know, he's telling her very cold and stuff, but he's telling her to her matter of fact. I mean, he really can't apologize. It's not like he feels bad about her or something. That was his job at the time. So it's just like, you know, he's just telling her, it's like, this is what happened. I'm sorry, you know, whether or not he's sorry. I mean, I kind of think maybe he is sorry, but it's not like he's taking it personally or whatever. He's just kind of sorry that this is what I was. And, you know, just right. hopefully for her to get on with her life and to quit living a lie and stuff like that and thinking that it's her mom killed him. I mean, what a what a terrible thing to live with all those years is thinking that your mom killed your dad and then killed herself and, you know, finally sets her straight and stuff and she's going to be able to move on with her life too. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point is that he doesn't want her to be in the same boat he's in, which is having to live a life that's not really hers. And I, I like that. And then we get the final coda which is the six weeks later in New York, and Landy gets a phone call from him, and they exchange the little pleasantries. And I, I did think it was odd that she laid that name and that birthday out on him, and I thought, is she really trying to keep him on the phone, or is she giving him code or what? I don't know, but I love his ending bit, is that he reveals to her he's back in New York. And that's the first time we've seen him in the States in real time, in the movie's real time. And I, I liked how that ended. Yeah, definitely. I like his little tricks like that where it's like, 
playing these little location games and always just showing that he's one up on you, even when it's not even serious like this, where he's just kind of being a little bit playful with her, where it's like, yeah, yeah get some sleep, you look tired and stuff, and the, the look she gives. The, the last one ended on this big upbeat moment, you know, and then they kicked the Moby song, which is cool, but I thought this was a much better ending, and then they kick into that Extreme Way song, and it just, uh, something about it, like, if I had seen this in a theater, I'd have been like, roll the third one now. You know, because that's immediately what I did after I watched this. I was like, got to see the third one. Got to see it now. Squeezed it in as quick as I could because I didn't want to. I wanted to know what happened next. Dude, this this is how if you're going to do a cliffhanger and leave it going, this is how you do it. And I knew then I was like, OK, they they obviously went into this going, you know, if we make another hit, we're doing another one. And I think they were ready to roll on it from from the end of this and it's i it's i was really surprised how fast this blew by yeah definitely i'm i think they always had an idea for a sequel whether or not it would happen i mean kind of at the end of the movie he gets his real name and stuff like that and he's back in the states so if they did end it here i mean it almost it would be fine if they did but me after seeing it it's like well they did the born identity the born the born supremacy well they got to do the born ultimatum next so it got me all excited to see the next one <laughs> Right, it's I, it definitely got a lot more than just us too, because or just you at the time, because a lot of people turned out for the next one. We'll get to that next time, but I think we're at the point of the podcast, Nick, where we give our final recommendations, thoughts, and popcorn ratings for the film. So, what are yours for the Born Supremacy? Uh, Born Supremacy. Um, I don't like it as much as the Born Identity. I think the Born Identity is a little bit more of a fun movie, where this one's a lot more. You know, we almost can kind of compare it to the Russian counterpart. It's a lot more methodical. It's a lot more almost like evil in a way. I mean, it kills off Marie, and it changes the tone up a lot. Where The last one was kind of more of a conventional movie. This one's more of a documentary feel. But I do like it a lot. I think it's a very good entry in the movie. And for me, I will give it a large popcorn. I will join you in that large popcorn as well. I didn't. I like the first one a lot. I happen to just think that's a just a good standalone. I don't know that this one would work just by itself. I think you had to have seen the first one and may have intentions to see the third one if you really wanted to get through it. And because of that, it, it's a tough thing to judge. But just on itself, on its own merits, this is a really good movie. It's a good tight script. They throw in some surprises and they definitely keep you off your guard or on your guard with that killing a Marie and some of the other things they do. I like the action. I like the change in direction with green grass. I like the way he's taking it. And I thought Matt Damon's performance in this was outstanding. I, I thought he was fantastic, even with less dialogue. And I happen to think he's somebody that can do dialogue, heavy films, but uh, this one was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it a large popcorn as well. It's not as not as good as the first one, I'll, I'll say that, but it's a very good sequel. And it's hard to get as good a sequel as this in a, in a film series or an action film series. Most of the time they really start dropping off the cliff pretty quick. This one is definitely setting us up for what I've got to think is going to be a real great finish in the Bourne Ultimatum. Because whatever we think of the Bourne Legacy when we get around to it, it's, I mean, it's ties to these other three are going to be loose to say the least, they say. So I think for a second chapter, hard to do better than this so i'm with you i recommend it and give it a large popcorn as well for the born supremacy folks thanks for joining us on this latest review of film strip you can find more reviews at our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies check out our archive section you can also check out our sister podcast the art of slaying above the vampire slayer retrospective where we review every episode of the buffy the vampire slayer tv show until next time for nick i'm jay thanks for tuning in to the review of the born supremacy on film strip 
Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All material discussed in this podcast is property of the respective owners, and any discussion of these materials is for entertainment purposes only. Filmstrip is a movie review podcast produced by Continuous Play Podcast, copyright 2012. Same way as a